This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Rising. We have a great Friday show for you today. I'm Jason Nichols. I'm joined at the desk today by the Washington Spectators. Amber Athey. Did I get it right? Athey? You did. All right. Glad, I'm glad that I didn't say Athey. Amber, great to be with you this morning. And it's great to be with all of you. Uh, filling in for Robbie and Bree today. We tied them up. We put them in the basement. And we are here <laughs> today for you. I know you love it. Amber, We've What's got, going on? Hey, we've got lots to get into. Up first, President Biden is expected to announce his re-election campaign next week. According to new reporting from The Washington Post, the president and his team are eyeing this upcoming Tuesday, the four-year anniversary of Biden's 2020 campaign launch as the big day. Meanwhile, on the other side of the aisle, New Wall Street Journal roll, uh, polling released today finds former President Donald Trump tops the GOP primary field, even as he faces prosecution in New York. Support for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who previously enjoyed a narrow lead over Trump in the Journal's December poll, dropped 14 points amongst likely GOP primary voters. He now trails 13 points behind the former president. So what do you make of this? You know, you're you're the resident conservative. <laughs> what do you make of this? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, at first it seemed like uh, Floridians in particular were really disturbed by President Trump's attacks on Florida Governor Ron DeSantis when he went after him ahead of the midterm elections and uh, after his campaign announcement and tried to flip the script on COVID. Um, but since then, it doesn't seem like DeSantis has gained any momentum whatsoever, and maybe his strategy of kind of sitting back and not responding to Trump has not served him very well. Yeah, I think you have to be a fighter. People are looking for a fighter. And Donald Trump, one of the things that, that he does really well, even with his issues on COVID and, and the vaccines and, and all of that, even when he was criticized by his own base, he stands up to them. He's like, ah, you know, I, I'm the boss here. And I think people like that. People embrace that. Ron DeSantis comes across as, like I've said this several times, he comes across small. He yeah. comes, he's not the biggest guy in the room. You don't look at Ron DeSantis and say, he's our leader. And I think that's why you're seeing a lot of Florida Republicans, Rutherford, Stu, Stube? Stubey, Greg Stubey, Byron Donalds. Yeah. Uh, Byron Donalds. Uh, Mast, all, all these guys who are Florida Republicans and, you know, they were trying to, the DeSantis camp was trying to keep them from endorsing Trump and they've gone with Trump. And I, and I think it's because Trump has that CEO feel and he's an entertainer. And that's something that you, you can't, that's in your spinal yeah, cord. Yeah, you can't teach that. Trump yeah. is actually very funny. And DeSantis, yeah. I don't think, has that same charisma. He's obviously very intelligent. His, he's very tapped into his policy decisions. He keeps a very small circle, which is one of the things I always criticized Trump for, was he was horrible at picking personnel and surrounding himself with the right people. 
But the things that I'm hearing from conservatives is that when they watch DeSantis try to work like a handshake line, it's just awkward. He doesn't yeah. relate to people very well. He's naturally an introvert. And Trump is the exact opposite. Exactly. He's really good at connecting with people one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah, no, I, and all of our presidents in recent memory, you go back to George W. Bush, he was not a good speaker. But one of the things anybody I know who's met George W. Bush says, you connect with the guy one-on-one. Yeah. -on -one. Uh, Barack Obama is a generational kind of talent in politics. And then uh, even Joe Biden, you know, even with his, you know, sniffing the hair and, and all of that kind of stuff, <laughs> you, you shake his hand and he connects with people. And I yeah. think that, you know, DeSantis just doesn't have it, whatever it is. And I think a lot of Republicans are, are starting to realize that, that he's, he's not the guy. And I think maybe he'll have a chance in 2028. That's a possibility. He could be a strong candidate, especially if he's going up against someone like Kamala Harris. I think That's true. these are two people who just are not necessarily good interviewers. He, you know, we saw DeSantis flub the whole Ukraine issue, which I think a lot of Republicans saw him as kind of waffling and going on both sides of the fence. Uh, so he's kind of, you know, he seems like he's just kind of looking for a lane. He doesn't know where to go. He doesn't want to offend people. And that's the exact opposite of Donald Trump, who projects strength. Um, I think against the Kamala Harris, he could he could do well, but I'm not convinced Kamala Harris is going to be the nominee in 2028, whether Joe Biden wins or loses. Right. Um, so I, I think he's got a chance down the road. But as you stated, there are certain things you can't teach in politics. And I don't think Ron DeSantis has it. He was lucky to win uh, that Florida race uh, the first time the first yeah. time against Andrew Gillum. Uh, Andrew Gillum, I think, for all his issues, is an incredibly talented politician. And he was lucky to win that race because of, we started to see some of those scandals start to bubble to the to the surface. Um, DeSantis is not one of those talented guys. And he's latched on to the right culture war uh, policies that were popular with Republicans, but they're starting to actually see him. And Trump is, Trump is the man right now. The other thing that I'm hearing is that in regards to a potential DeSantis campaign is that because of how much of a micromanager he is and how involved he is in every single decision, it's really hard to, uh, to grow that type of operation on a national level. I mean, what is he going to be doing, hopping into you know, every campaign briefing call and asking about exactly how many doors are being knocked in <laughs> you know, this precinct in Iowa? Like, it's just not feasible to run a national campaign. That way, you have to be willing to offload responsibility to other people. So something that works really well in the governor's office might not work so well when you're trying to run for president. But I wanted yeah. to ask you about yeah. Biden's ambitions, because <laughs> he's set to announce his reelection campaign. And uh, as bad as I think Biden is, and as, as, as low as his polling is, I don't see any other Democrat that could take that, that the reins right now. No, I, I think Biden. Number one, he's an incumbent, and I think it would be a big mistake for anybody to go against an incumbent president, because it makes it seem like your, your base doesn't have it figured out. You picked the wrong guy. So I, I've been saying, I know a lot of people and their problems within you know, mainstream democratic politics, their problem with Biden isn't really his policies. It's his age. Mm -hmm. That's the big issue. So we look at what Biden has done, 
And I know that conservatives and, and many other people are upset with Biden for many things. Uh, but when you look at what he's done, he said he was going to be this uniter, right? But we've seen some bipartisan uh, legislation under Biden. So they may not like him, but we got bipartisan infrastructure. We got uh, the Respect for Marriage Act. We got uh, the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, which, you know, we got uh, the first major gun legislation in 30 years um, that was broadly popular. I think that Joe Biden actually has a lot to run on. Uh, he's been hampered by inflation and by some of the things in the financial sector. But when you look at even his base, which is people like African-American voters um, who are upset, I think, about the lack of action on voting rights and a few other things, he still can tout some of the economic gains that have happened. And in, in, in the fourth quarter of, of 2022, we saw you know, uh, that African-Americans gained the most in terms of wage increases. So I think he has stuff to run on. We're going to see, you know, how this all works out. And we'll be back with more Rising after this. Ukraine has the green light to become a member of NATO. This according to NATO Secretary Jan Stoltenberg, who said this week that all the countries in the transatlantic military alliance have agreed to admit the war-torn country to the club after the war with Russia is over. Here's Stoltenberg speaking with reporters during his first visit to Ukraine since the start of the invasion. Let's take a look. All NATO allies have agreed that uh, Ukraine uh, will become uh, a NATO uh, member. Um, uh, but the main focus now is, of course, uh, on uh, uh, on how to uh, ensure that Ukraine uh, prevails. However, German Defense Minister Boris Pistorius said Thursday that the door is open for Ukraine to join, but, quote, this is not the time to decide. Here to discuss more on this is Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis. Thank you so much for joining us, Colonel. Always my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So is this the right time? It seems like there's a, a bit of a, uh, a discussion happening among world leaders as to whether or not this could potentially inflame tensions between the, the Ukrainian and Russian war. You know, I don't, I don't know what Stoltenberg's uh, intent is or, or what the, the senior leaders of NATO think is going to be accomplished by making statements like this. I don't know if they think it's going to deter somehow Russia when it hasn't done it for the last 14 years. But this is almost certainly going to have the exact opposite impact. If anything, this will cause Russia to just even more sternly decide that this is uh, that no negotiations are, are uh, useful and that they need to double down on trying to win their war militarily. And because, look, we got to understand that NATO advancement in Ukraine up to the Russian border was uh, one of the major sparks for the war in the first place. And to talk about that last year. Uh, so I, I don't think this is a good idea. And, and, and interestingly enough, about an hour ago, uh, Viktor Orban of, of Hungary, a NATO member, uh, when told that all NATO members agreed that Ukraine would become uh, a member of NATO, he said, what? Uh, <laughs> no, I don't think that's the case. So I'm not sure that there's the unity that Stoltenberg is saying there is. So I have a question, and that's about uh, Finland and Finland joining NATO. Do you think that that's uh, made a difference for, for Russia? Are they, 
uh, upset about Finland joining, and, and has that escalated things? Has that played any role in any of this? Well, it, it certainly has been bad from the Russian perspective. I don't think that Putin ever thought that Finland and Sweden would join NATO. Uh, so it's definitely a negative from Russia's perspective and something they miscalculated on. Uh, but I don't think that it's going to play too much of a military role, because when you look at the literally the military geography of that part of the country, that poses a lot less of a, of a threat and a risk of, of ground invasion into the Russian territory as the territory in, in Ukraine would if Ukraine became a NATO member there, which is why they've said that Ukraine is their non-negotiable red line that they won't allow without continuing to fight the war. I was seeing some chatter on social media from people who were convinced that this was Stoltenberg trying to embroil uh, all of these NATO countries into a world war. Do you take that cynical of a view on it, or do you think maybe he was just trying to create this unification where it didn't quite exist? Uh, you know, I, I don't think that Stoltenberg or anybody in NATO desires a war with Russia because they know that it would be catastrophic for us and, and almost certainly lead to nuclear escalation. So I don't think they desire that, but I, I think it's uh, there's a bigger problem or at least a, a compounding problem that I think they believe that by saying these kinds of statements that they can project power, that they can cause hesitation in Moscow. Uh, but, I mean, th those, those efforts have fallen so flat for the last couple of years in particular and throughout this war. I, I just don't know why they continue doing things that have demonstrated they're not going to work. Well, so I have a two-part question. Number one, does Ukraine right now meet the requirements to join NATO in terms of democracy and protection of uh, minorities? Uh, does it, you know, we, we had heard that they were decades away uh, before the war. Are they any closer? No, they're, they're not. And it's 100 percent certain that that's not the case, that they're any closer now. As a matter of fact, the reason why Viktor Orban is, is against even talking about extended NATO uh, membership to Ukraine is because of the minorities, the, the Hungarian minorities in the western part of Ukraine, which are being, uh, in his view, they're being abused and they're not having their rights and they're having a lot of their rights taken away. Uh, many of them are being what he says is being press ganged into military service to go fight when they don't want to. Uh, so there's a lot of problems with that. Uh, but just across the board, uh, I mean, by NATO's own founding documents, Ukraine is nowhere near viable to to uh, or, or to join the, the alliance or qualify. In any case, there's no way that they do. So, Lieutenant Colonel, I have one final question, um, and that is about does this, you know, what Stoltenberg said, does this actually empower uh, the Russian propaganda arm and, and their justification for the war? You know, they've been saying uh, things about NATO, and NATO has been a big enemy within uh, the Russian populace. And people are saying that perhaps the war was getting unpopular. Do you think Stoltenberg saying that Ukraine is going to join NATO actually empowers Vladimir Putin with his own people? I, I don't think that, that Russia, you know, thinks that the war is, gonna, is going well or that they're against it or whatever. I think most of them are resigned to it, especially if you look at the polls. But this absolutely plays into the theme that the Russian government has been using since the outset. That this is not a war between Russia and Ukraine. This is a war between NATO and Russia using Ukraine as a weapon against them. And certainly there's lots of physical evidence to support that view from the Russian perspective in that their their economy, that we're attempting to destroy it with all these sanctions. Uh, we're giving all these weapons uh, 
targeting information to their enemy, uh, ammunition, everything to, to kill Russian soldiers. So, I mean, from their perspective, it very much is a, a proxy war and that okay. it's NATO against them. And this just helps, I think, fuel that. According to a Washington Post report, the leak of Pentagon classified documents that detail the fight in Ukraine revealed that the United States warned Zelensky that he would not be able to hold on to the city of Bakhmut. But despite the warnings the grim and grim assessment, Ukrainian forces have managed to keep a hold of this key stronghold. What do you, what do you make of this intel? Look, that, that, that was the right call. I, I was saying that I think as far back as December that the, the reasonable, prudent thing for Ukraine was to evacuate from Bakhmut and reset up on, on existing, already prepared defensive lines a little bit further to the west from where they could extract a, a much higher cost on Russia. But the, the reason why they have held on this far is because they have continued, Ukraine has, to throw many of their uh, reserves and, and many of the forces that they had trained for an offensive in the spring or the summer. The intent was for Ukraine to launch an offensive to hit Russia. But by holding on to Bakhmut when it was militarily untenable, they have basically delayed the process, but they have sacrificed up to tens of thousands of troops that they needed for an offensive, which now puts the offensive either making it have to delay further or making it have a smaller chance of success. So I, I think that this is gonna come back to bite them. Well, thank you so much, Lieutenant. We really appreciate your perspective on this very important issue. More rising after this. Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Dick Durbin is asking Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts to testify before Congress. According to The Hill, Roberts is facing pressure from Democratic lawmakers to investigate details surrounding the undisclosed transactions and free trips Justice Clarence Thomas has taken, which were reportedly paid for by Republican billionaire and donor Harlan Crow. Democrats on the judiciary panel have expressed support for a, quote, binding code of ethics for SCOTUS justices, which, according to The Hill, Roberts did not welcome back in 2011. In a letter to Roberts, Durbin wrote, there has been a steady stream of revelations regarding justices falling short of the ethical standards expected other, of other federal judges and, indeed, of public servants generally. These problems were already apparent back in 2011, and the court's decade-long failure to address them has contributed to a crisis of public confidence. The status quo is no longer tenable. The time has come for a new public conversation on ways to restore confidence in the court's ethical standards. I invite you to join at Political Reports. Durbin said Robert's testimony on ethics issues would improve public faith in the high court. Senator Lindsey Graham weighed in on the matter, saying, I would support his decision not to come if that's what he wanted to do, the Hill reports. So what do you make of this? Should he come and testify or not? I just feel like this is all a big to-do about really nothing. The, I mean, the ethics standards have only changed very recently, so a lot of these 
so-called free trips and, and things that were happening before friends were not things that he would have necessarily been required to report in the past. And it's pretty common among SCOTUS justices to have friends in high places. I mean, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, if you were looking at some of the travel that she went on with friends, uh, we didn't really have the same reaction to that when she was alive. Uh, because these people obviously don't get paid. They're, they're not able to have the same level of income that perhaps politicians have or are able to make after they leave Congress. So they end up becoming friends with these people who are able to sort of treat them in these ways. Now, obviously, there's always going to be the question of whether or not this is influencing their ability to be judicious, uh, judicially impartial. But that would be a question we would have to ask of every justice on the bench, mm -hmm. not just Clarence Thomas. No, absolutely. I, I agree with you on one point, and that is that the ethical standards have just kind of been written uh, when it comes to the gifts. And I think most people on the left don't think the gifts were the biggest problem. You know, it's, it's not about what happened in terms of, you know, him taking him on vacation and, and things like that. It was the financial uh, transaction that occurred over the land the where he estate, got paid, yeah. the real estate. That, of course, dates back to the Nixon era when you had Abe Fortas, who got $20,000 from a guy named Wolfson, who, who was a guy on Wall Street. I know it's kind of funny, Wolfson, Wall Street. Wolf of but, Wall Street. Right, exactly. But... He got that money. He actually gave the $20,000 back, but he was still forced off the court. And when we look at what other federal judges uh, have uh, had to deal with in terms of their ethics, Clarence Thomas not disclosing that is an actual issue. I was with the whole thing about him going on a trip with his friends and even using the private jet. You're allowed to have friends. You're allowed to travel with your friends. If your friend wants to pick up the bill, pick up the tab, uh, that's one thing. It's different when you don't disclose a financial transaction. In addition to that, Harlan Crow has had some business before the court. Mm -hmm. Not directly, but he certainly funds organizations that actually do uh, have business before the court and actually have done business before the court. So could there be some influence peddling? I, I will say that Clarence Thomas has always been Clarence Thomas in terms of his politics, at least since he was, you know, in law school. So right. it's not that I think that Clarence Thomas, this may have changed some of his views. I don't think he was a, a liberal justice and then got some <laughs> and money. And then Harlan Crow and, took him on a yeah, trip and he yeah. was like, all and right, then. And all then. of a sudden changed. <laughs> but that is, in my view, an ethical violation based on what we kicked other justices out for in the past. And... And the fact that he should have disclosed a financial transaction. He says he lost money on it, but it doesn't matter. You still yeah, have to. I mean, so he's amended his form, and this is not uncommon, again, for SCOTUS justices to amend their filings. Uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson has had to do it. Ruth Bader Ginsburg has had to do it. She didn't report the sale of a stock, for example. So, I mean, this is—I I just don't think it's um, as big of a deal as it's being made out to be based on the historical precedent for it. Mm -hmm. And even pro Publica, Publica, which um, first reported on this lack of disclosure, didn't even write a follow-up piece about the amendment or claims like they some major victory against Clarence Thomas. So I, I don't even think that they are uh, propping it up as this major ethical violation yeah. that it's been made out to be in the rest of the press. Again, I, I think it's, it's all about... Um the rules, first of all, we need to iron out more rules, and that's why I think uh, Chief Justice 
John Roberts needs to go before uh, Dick Durbin in the Senate and, and talk about uh, the rules and the, and the ethical rules for the court, because I think it's not right that you have someone who has a lifetime position for the right, who always talks about, and, and people like Lindsey Graham, who talk about the three-letter organizations and the bureaucracy and the unelect, unelected bureaucracy. You have basically people who are unelected who have a lifetime position. And they're kind of given free reign to do what they want. And I think that that's really problematic. They need to iron these rules out a little more. And Chief Justice Roberts needs to go before the Senate and talk about what the rules actually are for Senate, uh, excuse me, for the SCOTUS justices. But I think we can see that this is a violation. And again, based on historical precedent, based on the fact that Abe Fortas was forced off the court for $20,000. Again, $20,000 in the early 70s was a lot more money. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, he actually gave the money back, but he was forced out by the president, pressured him. Other justices on the court pressured him uh, to vacate his seat on, on the court. And we see that if this happened to one of the lower federal courts, that person would have been, you know, had a serious reprimand or even had to leave, to leave the court. And I think that to let uh, just the really powerful judges, the nine of them, get away with things that we would punish some other federal judge around the country for, um, I think sets a really bad precedent. And it's against what a lot of conservatives are saying about these, you know, the three-letter organizations, the unelected bureaucracy. I mean, I, I'm all about rules being applied equally. I would say here's the deal that I would want to make. If mm -hmm. Chief Justice John Roberts is going to come testify about the new ethics rules, then I also want an update on the investigation into this leaker of the Dobbs decision, because what's going on <laughs> yeah, with that? No. We still don't know who that person is. I mean, there's only so many likely suspects, right? So let's let's do both at the same time. Let's, yeah, and, let's and kill two birds with one stone. No, I hear that, but also <laughs> we have to remember that Alito was talking about that at his private dinners and talking about uh, what he was going to do in terms of Dobbs and, and abortion altogether. So. The leaker could be Alito. It could be Alito. You know what I mean? <laughs> Which is really kind of <laughs> Well, I, that would be fun. I don't yeah. know. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, all of them need to be held accountable. And I'm not just saying that about the conservative justices. You know, I'm talking about if Katanji Brown Jackson does this or uh, Elena Kagan or Sotomayor, if they are, you know, sitting there and getting money and and for uh, sure. Everybody you know. has to disclose. You, you I, I think disclose. we're in agreement on that. Yeah. All right. Great discussion, more rising after this. Capitol Hill is up in arms over the debt ceiling fight. According to new reporting from The Hill, both conservatives and moderates are less than pleased about the newly unveiled debt limit bill, leaving party leaders scrambling to shore up votes. Here to break it down for us is The Hill's own congressional reporter, Michael Schnell. Good to be with you, Mikey. Can you break it down for us? Thanks, guys, for having me. Yeah, so essentially what we've been talking about, this debt limit, right, for the past three months, trying to figure out what's going to happen, how could Democrats and Republicans get on the same page. And for those three months, we've been at a stalemate. We've been at a standstill. Both sides are digging in their heels. But we see, we saw some movement this week. House Republicans introduced their debt limit bill. It's their proposal of what to do with the debt limit as we're creeping up on that summer deadline. And essentially what this would do is it would raise the debt limit 
limit by $1.5 trillion or until March, uh, the end of March of next year, whichever comes first. And then it also is paired with what Republicans are saying amounts to $4.5 trillion in spending cuts. Of course, this has been something that House Republicans, specifically conservatives, were pushing for during the Speaker's race back in January. And so now those concessions that Speaker McCarthy made, they're coming to term, and we're seeing those spending cut proposals. So House Republican leadership is hoping to bring this bill to the floor next week uh, to pass it and then send it to the Senate, where it really has no chance of moving, obviously, Senate controlled by Democrats. But the only thing is, is it's not an easy path to 218 votes in the House right now, despite the fact that this was a bill crafted by House Republicans. As mentioned, as you guys mentioned, moderates and conservatives both have some misgivings about this bill. Uh, some are saying that they're leaning no. We've even heard a few say there are hard no's. There are still negotiations happening behind the scenes to potentially change the text of the bill to bring more House Republicans on board. But the reason why this is crucial is because House Republicans are working with a very slight majority, right? They can only afford to lose four votes, assuming that all Democrats vote against it, which Hakeem Jeffries suggested uh, just this week that that's going to be the case. So again, House Republicans are hoping to bring this to the floor next week. It is not a sure thing that it has the votes. There's going to be a lot of uh, wrangling and negotiating happening behind the scenes in the coming days. Well, meanwhile, President Joe Biden has said that he's only interested in a clean bill to raise the debt ceiling. So even if they are able to hammer out some of these differences within the Republican caucus, what are the chances that anything that goes to the president's desk is going to be signed. Yeah. So that's another part. The short answer is there's no chance, right? But, uh, just <laughs> nice. to, just to, but just to back it up even a little more, uh, when we're talking about this Republican bill, it's not even going to get past the Senate. Right. Again, right. It's, it would be subject to the 60-vote threshold. That would mean that at least 10 Republicans would have to be on board. There's no appetite. I mean, there's no, uh, that would mean that at least 10 Democrats, I'm sorry, would have to come on board. There's no appetite there in the Senate. So really what this bill is being seen as is the opening salvo in what are going to be these really high-stakes negotiations for the debt limit. Uh, this is House Republicans' way of saying, this is what we want to see in a debt limit and spending cut proposal. This is what House Republicans would put our weight behind. Uh, but obviously, you know, the White House is not going to get on board right. with this. So this is sort of the opening flagpole in the negotiations, and we'll see where we can go from there. The only thing is, is President Biden and Democrats have been adamant that they want a clean debt ceiling increase. They do not want to see spending cuts. Again, both sides are really digging in their heels. Uh, there's no indication of what, you know, the, the answer to this issue will be, which I will say has to come soon because analysts and experts have been saying that the debt limit, we will hit the debt limit over the summer. Goldman Sachs came out this mm -hmm. week and said that based on tax returns that came in, it looks like we could hit the debt limit early June which is, you know, yeah. very early. It's yeah. compared to the August-July timeline we were talking mm -hmm. about. So lawmakers are going to have to start moving because there's been a, a warning that the economic effects of a default, which obviously the U.S. has never experienced, could be cataclysmic. So there's right. going to have to be some movement here. House Republicans are trying to inch that along. But uh, again, both sides are digging in their heels. So where we go from here remains to be seen. So is there... A uh, sense that on the from far right Republicans that they think that these negotiations or or what Kevin McCarthy is proposing doesn't go far enough is is that what it is, and moderates want perhaps a little less is that is that where the the disagreement lies sort of yeah that's essentially broadly speaking what the issue is so there are some conservative Republicans Matt Gates Chip Roy they want stricter work requirements for uh, some of these entitlement programs for things like food stamps and things like Medicaid Social Security and Medicare though have, are not 
being touched. They're mm -hmm. not included in this bill. So some of those conservative Republicans want the work requirements to be beefed up. But then you have someone like Congresswoman Nancy Mace, who is known to be a moderate um, within the conference. She's concerned about some uh, energy provisions that are being repealed from the Inflation Reduction Act mm -hmm. that House Democrats passed last summer. She said that something like solar energy is really important in her district in South Carolina. So she's voicing some concerns about that. So to get to your point, yes, a lot of the general confines of it is that conservatives want more, moderates want less. But there's one more angle to this is the fact that this bill is 320 pages long. Wow. It was Jeez. just released this week. There are a ton of provisions in it. It's not just that debt ceiling increase. It's also all of these spending cuts. It's other provisions. I mean, H.R. 1, that massive energy package that House Republicans just recently passed, the entire H.R. 1 is in this bill. So we're talking about a massive piece of legislation mm -hmm. here. A ton of lawmakers are still sifting through the details, trying to figure out where they stand on it. But in terms of the ones who have some misgivings, I spoke to some conservative Republicans this week. They're happy with how negotiations are going. They said that Republican leadership is being receptive to some of their requests. So, you know, that's some good optimism that we don't always see on Capitol Hill. But again, in terms of where this goes, they are not at 218 votes yet. So there's going to definitely be more discussions. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, here's what White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre had to say on the matter. The way to have a real negotiation uh, on the budget is for House Republicans to take threats of default uh, when it comes to the economy uh, and uh, what it could potentially do to the economy off the table. House Republicans need to get to work and stop the delay and put a bill on the, on the floor that's going to avoid default. So looks like Republicans have now offered something. Um, and then the other question I had as a follow-up to Karine Jean-Pierre's statement was that last week, Speaker McCarthy said that he actually hadn't heard from President Biden. Has that changed? Right. So the last time President Biden and McCarthy met on this issue, specifically a meeting on the debt limit, was back on February 1st. President Biden has said that he is not going to have another conversation about the debt limit until House Republicans release their annual budget, which they have not done. It was meant to come out previously, but it's been delayed. They've sort of been kicking that can down the road. So, yeah, President Biden, Speaker McCarthy, I mean, they've met on different matters. They took part in a St. Paddy's Day event together on Capitol Hill. But in terms of meetings specifically on the debt limit, no, they have not. And uh, just recently this week, there was a phone conversation between President Biden, Chuck Schumer, and Hakeem Jeffries. And uh, there was a readout from the White House afterwards. And they called on House Republicans to let's deal with the debt limit, let's pass a clean debt limit increase, and then we can talk about budget negotiations later. Because again, that's going to be a thing as we move into the fall when we inch closer to the end of the fiscal year. So yeah, I mean, Again, this just gets back to the main idea that both sides are being very, uh, they're being very adamant about their, about their positions. It's, we're entering into a massive game of chicken that has serious implications for the economy. Um, but again, House Republicans are trying to move it a little forward, but we'll see if they have the votes to do that. All right, well, we'll definitely have to hear more about this, Mikey. Thank you for coming on, and we'll be back with more Rising. The Supreme Court is expected to decide by tonight whether a commonly used abortion pill should continue to be accessible. The Biden administration had requested an emergency stay to keep the Food and Drug Administration's approval of the pill Mifepristone in place. A lower court banned it, but Justice Samuel Alito put the brakes on that court's ruling. 
Meanwhile, Donald Trump's campaign made it clear the former president does not support a national abortion ban. The former president and 2024 GOP presidential candidate believes that abortion should be decided at the state level. Trump's stance drew ire from anti-abortion advocates. The leading organization on the matter, Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America, called his position morally indefensible. The group's president said in a statement that, quote, saying the issue should only be decided at the states is an endorsement of abortion up until the moment of birth. Even brutal late-term abortions in states like California, Illinois, New York, and New Jersey. So what do you think about this? Is this going to be trouble for, for Donald Trump? I think it's trouble across the GOP. I don't think anyone knows how to talk about this issue in a way that straddles that line between being pro-life and also recognizing that polling doesn't really reflect that Americans necessarily agree with the mo most pro-life individuals on the issue of abortion. Most Americans do agree with restrictions, especially on late-term abortions. But, uh, for example, when Governor Ron DeSantis signed this bill in Florida last week, uh, banning abortion after six weeks, that's not a popular position. Right. And so I think what Trump is probably trying to do is say, look, I'm pro-life, but I, I want you know, citizens to be able to decide how they feel about abortion. And I understand the backlash from pro-life groups, because, look, if you believe abortion is murder, as I do and as they do, then there's no gray area, right, that you're going to be happy with. Right. And, and it's interesting, uh, you know, I think on the left, um, people are going to play ads of Donald Trump in 2015 saying that he thought people who sought abortion should be punished. Um, and of course, that's not going to bode well with young voters, with college-educated women. They're not going to like the fact that he was basically saying you should be punished if you try to get an abortion. I also think that uh, the organization that we just talked about, them saying that in New York and California you can get a late-term abortion, that is not really true. Um, so I looked it up and I see that New York's Reproductive Health Act allows practitioners to perform an abortion on a patient who is 24 weeks or more away from the start of pregnancy if the fetus is not viable or the abortion is necessary to protect the patient's life or health. So again, this idea that there are these liberal states where you can get an abortion at nine months pregnant is, is not really factual. Most cases, it's about viability. And if you and find out health. later on that they're not viable, then you can uh, terminate yeah, a pregnancy. Yeah, some of these laws are tricky, though, because in some of the cases, um, when you look at the actual language of the bill, for example, the one that was being proposed in Virginia, mm -hmm. what they define as health of the mother is actually quite vague. And so they do open up the possibility for if you find the right doctor, they will perform the abortion for you, even if your life isn't actually at risk. Sometimes they'll cite, for example, potential emotional damage stemming from the pregnancy as a reason to uh, flush the fetus out um, for uh, protecting the mother's health. So it's a case-by-case -case basis. There are instances where these bills do, in fact, keep that language very vague intentionally so they can still perform the late-term abortions while claiming that they're doing it in yeah. rare instances. Well, see, the, the interesting thing about that is I don't know, and, you know, I know a lot of people on the left, and I don't know a lot of people on the left who believe that abortion is okay, you know, by choice, uh, after viability. Now, viability for many 
is be is before 24 weeks. It's a it's more about it's more like 20 weeks where yeah, because it's can changing because that's outside. based on a on a scientific question of how early we can keep a baby alive outside of the womb, which has gotten early and earlier as our technology has advanced. Yeah, no, absolutely, and and so it's you know the estimates that I've seen have been about 20 weeks, and most people say uh, you don't even know you may not even know you're pregnant within six weeks. I mean, that's, that's such a short window of time and it doesn't give women an opportunity. And so it's basically an abortion ban in Florida. And most women, particularly, as I said, those college educated women who decide elections because they're, they're kind of swing voters, swing voters in Pennsylvania. I think Florida is pretty solidly red now, but at one point they would swing states like Florida um, they're not happy about things like this. And, and calling it, by the way, that 16-week bill, them calling that a, a fetal heartbeat bill is a misnomer. I just want to say that. You know, the science— Are you going to say that the heartbeat's just the chemical waves going through the baby? Uh, well, here's what I'm going to say. <laughs> is, is that, that what—that was the, what the—was uh, it the Planned Parenthood president that yeah, said well, that? Yeah, well, I'll say this. The, well, they're not completely wrong about that, and I will say that um, at six weeks— you're not even a fetus, you're an embryo. So calling it a fetal heartbeat is a misnomer because it's not a fetus. And also you don't have a fully formed heart. That is, that is a fact at six weeks. So calling it a fetal heartbeat when you don't have a heart, you're not a fetus is, is definitely a misnomer. I definitely understand why somebody who believes that abortion is murder, you are alive at the point of conception. I wonder, and, and I guess my, my question I have several questions for a lot of pro-life people, but um, my first question is, and I think that GO, the GOP would be served, better served if they actually address this, and that is if they started to talk about things like maternal death, which is a big problem in black communities, mm -hmm. if the GOP actually went out and said, we have a plan to curb this because this is a problem. They could actually yeah, make some errors. And, you know, and, and a... infant mortality, which is highest in those states that actually banned abortion. So these are, you want to say late-term abortions, that's a super late-term abortion because people are, children are dying after they are born. And Republicans haven't really addressed that. Well, I think we can walk and chew gum at the same time. And, but they and haven't. I think there's a common, well, I think there's a common misconception that pro-life people only care about unborn children. And it's just mm -hmm. not true. If you look at basically any statistic that talks about resources going to pregnancy centers, to daycare centers, to religious charities that help women who have just given birth, particularly single mothers, the vast majority of that funding comes from pro-life individuals and Christian individuals. It's not coming from the people on the left who love to yell at pro-lifers and say, you only care about a child before it comes out of the mother's womb. It's just not true. Yeah, well, I, I think part of that is aided by, you know, there was all this We'll adopt your baby. Don't don't abort your baby. And, and it's they like, do adopt more yeah, children than, but there are than people on the other side of the there political are 400, aisle. There are 400,000 children in foster care. Foster care is a different so, situation. Is it? So, yes, Those exactly. are children. I understand that. But what I'm saying is that the, there's a difference in where foster children are allowed to be placed. You don't just get to volunteer to take in a foster child in most cases. They usually— You absolutely can. But most of the foster children that are in foster care right now are actually not able to be placed with these volunteer families because they have familial Most, connections that they're attempting to get them connected with. So Yeah, I, I think that there, there are, particularly with older children, 
Uh, as we've seen in Washington, D.C., I'm sure you remember Wednesday's Child. Do you remember that, when that used to come on television, where they were always trying that to might get— That might have been before my time. might have been before <laughs> your time. But they would try to uh, get children homes and get them adopted. And yet, we don't see Republicans actually going out and, and trying to uh, attack these issues for the health of mothers and for the health of their children. But this is a topic that we could debate forever. I'm sure we could. And we could have a discussion about. We didn't even about. get to talk about the, uh, what's it called, Mifepristone? Yeah, And, and how all the statistics about how it's safe are totally false. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I don't know, I don't know. It's been around for 20 years. But either way, what hasn't been around for 20 years is rising, and we'll be back with more of it. Summer air travel is expected to be even more of a hellscape than normal, with a lack of staff compounded with rising prices and continuous delays, disaster is looming ahead. Here to help us break it down exactly how dire the situation is, is News Nation Washington correspondent Evan Lambert. Evan, welcome. And what's going on with, with summer air travel? Yeah, thank you for having me. And I'm so sorry to be the bearer of bad news, right? But there are a lot of factors that are coming together to potentially make this situation with air travel this summer pretty hairy, pretty bumpy, to use a pun, right? Uh, so it's a factor, a couple factors uh, that are all kind of coming together at the same time. So first, you've got uh, this shortage of air traffic controllers and of pilots. Uh, and because of that, um, the FAA has allowed airlines to cut back some of their summer schedules. And so you have fewer flights that's likely to drive up prices. So that's one thing that people might be dealing with, but also that demand, right? So coming out of the pandemic, everybody wants to go somewhere. We saw that last summer. That's likely to happen again this summer. So TSA says that it is expecting record screening demand, people going through those checkpoints. So that's something that they are going to be preparing for. Uh, but you might expect delays while you're waiting to go through security as well. And then if you are planning any kind of international trip, uh, and even if you don't have one scheduled, this is where you might want to pay attention, right? So the State Department says that it's processing times for people either renewing passports or getting new passports are at really an all-time high. It's at 10 to 13 weeks of processing time to get a passport. And that just compares in February, it was at six to nine. So, uh, you know, you can see that it is increasing and that doesn't even count the time for you to send things in uh, and, and, and get some of those things back. So it could be a very long time to get a passport. Of course, there are some options to expedite it, but you know, even if you think at some point you might go somewhere internationally, you probably should get a passport now, even if you don't have a trip planned. Well, I'm definitely feeling very grateful that my passport is up to date, <laughs> Evan. Uh, what is behind the staff shortages uh, that you were mentioning with pilots and, and flight crews? Is that just leftover from the pandemic? Does that have anything to do with vaccine mandates? What's driving that? Essentially, it seems to be leftover from the pandemic. So we just really saw that problem get worse and worse uh, coming off of when really there weren't a lot of flights going anywhere because of the shutdowns and the health procedures, right? So you had a lot of older pilots retiring. Uh, and then what's unique to 
air travel and uh, to pilots and, and their requirements, they have to retire at age 65. Uh, and so there's really not this pipeline of younger pilots in the numbers uh, compared to some of the older pilots. So that's that's causing that problem as well. And so there had been some talk uh, among airlines and the FAA. There was a proposal to, or I should say is a proposal, to raise the uh, retirement age to 67 instead of 65. But that hasn't been resolved. So you're just kind of seeing those problems continue to happen. Um, with the air traffic controllers, similar thing, carryover from the pandemic. Uh, and, and it really might take months and months to see any of that improve. Um, there is money in President Biden's proposed budget for 2024, uh, $25 billion. Uh, and the Transportation Secretary had been talking about this to hire more air traffic controllers to fix some of the technical problems that they've had with uh, the notice to air missions system that caused some problems. If you'll remember earlier in the year, uh, widespread delays and, and grounding of flights, I believe that was in January. Uh, so both of those things, both the air traffic controller shortage and some of these technical updates depend on that money in the 2024 budget. And as you know, it's going to be months before any semblance of a budget passes. So it's something that you know, certainly is going to affect people through the summer, but potentially even longer. So Evan, I want to ask you about TSA. Are lines going to be longer? Is it going to be uh, more difficult to get through security because of uh, what's going on in the shortages? Are they suffering just like the airlines in terms of staffing? I think maybe it's a little bit less for TSA of a staffing problem uh, and more of just this pre-pandemic uh, demand coming back uh, and even maybe surpassing. So uh, the, the TSA administrator spoke to Bloomberg, I believe it was, uh, just a few days ago and said that you know, they're really predicting what could turn out to be record demand this summer as far as people hopping on flights. So you're going to see that reflected in the length of the lines. So obviously, you know, if you have TSA pre-check, that might save you a little bit of time. If you are considering it, you might want to get it uh, to, to try to cut off some time in those lines. And, and the administrator, TSA administrator said, look, they are preparing for it. Uh, they're going to do their best, but they're kind of just laying out the expectation out there that, you know, people might need to be patient. So you could mm -hmm. definitely see those long lines this summer uh, as you're trying to get to your, your destinations, hopefully for vacation. So what are some of the other recommendations besides maybe TSA pre-check if people have to fly this summer to make their trip go a little bit more smoothly? I mean, I think it's just right setting the expectations. So you might have uh, delays in the flight schedules. You might see higher prices because of uh, the shortages of uh, some of the summer schedules that the, the airlines are implementing uh, to deal with some of, some of this. Okay. Uh, and just on the, the passport front, you know, even if you don't have an international trip scheduled, you might want to think about getting the passport. If you know that you've got somewhere to be at a specific you know, time, you have a trip booked, or um, you might just want to pay for the expedited uh, handling of the passport, uh, that's directly through the state department. I believe it's about $60, and that will cut off several weeks uh, to that process. Uh, I want to share a story. So there's a, a friend of mine that I know in TV news, she was getting married at a destination wedding in Mexico, uh, and, and her mom did not have a passport, was going through the process, and it really came down to the line. She almost missed the wedding, and I was just really wow, invested that's my worst in nightmare. my <laughs> social media posts about this. Uh, was, was she going to make it? Thank goodness her mom did make it. Um, they actually made a last-ditch effort through their um, 
congressman's office to try to get things sped up. So that is something that you can also do as well. If you're facing that deadline where you think you might miss a trip, reach out to your senator, to your representative, and and see if they can make a phone call and, and try to get something moving a little bit faster. I'm not even really quite sure how they do that, but that's definitely an option where people can reach out to them. And in this case, it, it really helped and, and made my friend's destination wedding. So how much of this falls on Pete Buttigieg? We saw what happened in, uh, you know, with Southwest and the fallout from that. How much can people kind of point the finger at, at uh, DOT and, and at Pete Buttigieg? Yeah, I mean, look, that's a popular uh, talking point, and uh, it, it's easy to go after the people that are in charge there right now. Um, and so like, they're just kind of responding to it and saying that they're going to do everything they can. That's why they're pushing uh, the money, this $25 billion that's in President Biden's budget that is supposed to go directly toward travel to air traffic controllers to improving some of these uh, systems that we've seen have technical problems uh, and cause you know, grounding of flights and delays. Um, but, you know, a lot of it does rest on on the airlines themselves as well. Um, so, you know, a bit of shared shared blame here. Um, you know, they've got to deal with their staffing issues, get people hired and trained. Uh, and it's from what I've been reading, really, it's just this lack of people that uh, want to be pilots or are uh, young pilots. The makeup of most pilots are it's kind of a second career for them. So. Uh, with the pilot shortage specifically, maybe it's a, a change in culture where we've got to get uh, younger people more interested in in doing that at an earlier age uh, because we're facing all these problems with this mandated retirement age. And, and, and that proposal to extend it to 67 might might pass at some point uh, and might help when it comes to, to that. But uh, just uh, many things uh, that are uh, all just happening at the same time that, that make for potentially uh, some problems this summer when it comes to traveling and flying. Well, Evan, let me just say, I hope you get an opportunity to fly out and get a vacation and get it, get some, some sun and uh, get a tan. Thank you so much. We'll be back with more Rising. Charges have been dropped against actor Alec Baldwin for his role in the fatal shooting on the set of his film, Rust. Cinematographer Helena Hutchins was killed when a prop gun that Baldwin was holding fired a live round. He was originally accused of extremely reckless acts and charged with manslaughter. Prosecutors in the case say charges against Baldwin may be refiled and that their follow-up investigation will remain active and ongoing. Baldwin has resumed the, the filming of Rust this week, 18 months after the shooting, according to The Telegraph. The production will take place at the Yellowstone Film Ranch in Montana. The original production took place in New Mexico, where the Rust movie productions reached a settlement with state workplace regulators last month, quote, over serious violations, The Telegraph reports. All right. Should Are you he surprised that the charges were dropped? Um, no, because it, 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 it seems like they're, they're, they're continuing to investigate yeah. and they want to get more evidence. Um, so it's, it's kind of a temporary thing. I, it seems like they really want to get them. So I, I'm, I'm not at all shocked that they dropped these charges for the time being, but they're, they're making it clear that they're not saying that he's not guilty of, of a crime and that they may revisit this and that they're continuing to investigate. So if I'm Alec Baldwin, I'm not 
you know, I'm not feeling like I'm home free yeah. at all. I don't know. Him and his wife posted this cozy Instagram after the announcement was made. So maybe they're feeling a, a little sigh of relief. But I agree. I hope they continue to investigate because here's the thing. Anytime a gun is in your hand, you are responsible, right? I mean, yeah. I have heard from numerous Hollywood actors and people who've worked in the entertainment industry in the aftermath of this shooting. And the thing that they consistently say is, yes, it is the armorer's job to make sure that there are not live rounds on set. But it's also the person who is ultimately pulling the trigger to double check their work. You should always be making sure that that gun is either unloaded or loaded with blanks before you sit there and pull the trigger. Yeah, I think they're, they're also, um, you know, some of the culpability lies of, on him because he's the producer. Like, this is yeah. his film. Um, and so if there are live rounds on set, ultimately the guy at the top is the one who is responsible. And Alec Baldwin clearly failed here. Now... Is he criminally liable? That I, I don't know. Um, I think Helena Hutchins' family certainly should hold him civilly liable. Sure. They certainly should sue Russ Productions. And he's actually re you know reigniting this film. Like, I know. Who's why are, watch why this are film? they still filming? Right. Yeah, like, I mean, I I'd, feel like it's kind of a slap in the face to her family to even continue production on this. I mean, yeah, okay, you spent a lot of money. You want to finish the movie, whatever, but. People, somebody died yeah, on set. I yeah. mean, how do you keep going after that? I can't imagine morale is particularly high yeah. on the set, right? I mean, it, it seems like it's almost in poor taste exactly. to do so. And I, I, I wasn't going to watch it anyway, to be honest with you. I'm not into, like, modern westerns, but... Uh, I don't think I could watch a film like this knowing what, what occurred. Well, and the sad thing is there are a lot of people who probably feel the exact opposite way who yeah. want to watch it because of the scandal surrounding the movie. And that's an, another piece of this that adds to that icky feeling, which is they're profiting off of this tragedy mm. because this movie received so much more yeah. publicity than it would have otherwise if Helena Hutchins hadn't been killed on set. Yeah, do you think Alec Baldwin has reached out to Helena Hutchins' family? Do you think he's like, because I haven't heard him make any public statements ab about it, really. Like, I think he had the one tearful apology or public statement, maybe, but I, mm. I don't know if he's reached out to her family privately. I certainly hope so, but... yeah. I don't know. He's just kind of known for being kind of a distasteful guy in the industry. Nobody really seems to like him that much. He apparently has a history of being kind of gruff and rude on set. Yeah. So it's... That's kind of a media thing, though. I mean... Yeah, like, I mean, I don't know if it's true. I don't live in Hollywood, but yeah, <laughs> that's just what they say. Yeah. I mean, even, even in our media realm. There are some gruff people out there <laughs> yeah. who, are, who are not necessarily, they, they could not get away with it at my day job, mm -hmm. like talking to people a certain way. I've been on set with certain people. Some people we probably know probably uh, in common. I'm like, if you were anywhere else, like there's no way you'd be out on your backside. There's no way you could talk to your subordinates the way uh, that you do in media. And, and that includes Hollywood. But, I mean, he's, he may be, I don't know if he's a good guy, I don't know if he's a bad guy, but I know that he bears some responsibility in this. Whether it's criminal responsibility, I'm not saying that. I don't know if he deserves to go to jail, 
but he certainly should make things right with Helena Hutchins' family. Yeah, and we do know that there are still the charges against the armorer, who I think is the primary right. person to put blame on, because, again, that's the person that is responsible for checking all of these weapons, making sure there aren't live rounds on set. And if I remember correctly, the original reporting was that the armorer and some of the other individuals who handled the firearms on the movie set had gone out to the shooting range, the gun range, yeah. the day prior, mm -hmm. and that was how the live rounds got oh. back into oh. the set, which yeah. is so irresponsible, yeah, right? Yeah, what the heck? I mean, that's there's no excuse for that, really. Can't, can't you put gunshots in in post-production? Like, there's so many amazing things that you can do in post-production. I can't imagine that you that you can't make a gunshot look real in post-production without actually even having to fire a blank. Because my understanding is that blanks aren't—they don't come without— Risk. Risk. Sure. There's still yeah. risk when you fire a blank. You're still Anytime you're a pulling a trigger on a weapon, there's a yeah. risk, right? Um, and then, I mean, there's a reason when you go through gun safety training why you never point a gun at something you don't intend to shoot. Absolutely. And you always know what's beyond your target. You don't put the finger on the trigger until you're ready to shoot. And I don't know, it's just such a weird culture in Hollywood that you have this slate of anti-gun celebrities who have no problem like wheeling and dealing with firearms on a movie set. And unfortunately, I wonder if it's led to this mindset where everybody else is responsible for handling the weapons and we just do what we're told and pull the trigger whenever they tell us to. Maybe that's what possibly led to Alec Baldwin being a bit negligent here. I don't yeah. know. I don't know. I, I, I don't want to necessarily say that you have to uh, believe in gun ownership or firearm ownership and, you know, in order to have a gun in a movie. No, you're but playing you should role, educate yourself, right? Absolutely. And, and I mean, isn't that the, the armor's job? Like, they, they are supposed to educate people who are mm -hmm. handling firearms how to operate them safely and certainly not mix in live rounds. Um, I mean, that's, that's just insane and it's tragic. My heart goes out to Helena Hutchins' family. I mean, that's, it's, it's really heartbreaking. But we'll be back with more Rising. He walked to his yard and he said he was going to kill the kid. That that was six-year-old Kinsley White, one of three victims that 24-year-old Robert, Robert Lewis Singletary allegedly shot after a basketball rolled into his yard. The suspect was caught in Hillsborough County, Florida, after fleeing from where the incident took place in Charlotte, North Carolina. It's unclear what prompted Singletary to unload a barrage of bullets on kids and neighbors. But according to neighbors, he had yelled at children before and they tell CNN Singletary was new to the neighborhood and appeared to dislike kids. This is not Singletary's first run-in with the law. Police revealed that he was charged in December with assault and kidnapping for allegedly attacking his girlfriend. Charges on that case are still pending. What is wrong with people? I mean, that's... The, the bottom line on this story, it's yeah. disgusting. I mean, how, how could you see a little girl running into your yard and think it's ever appropriate to shoot at her? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, 
We have some serious issues in our country with, with uh, people with mental health issues and, and violence. Um, I do want to make it clear that most people with mental health concerns are nonviolent. So mm -hmm. I know a lot of times it's like, it's mental health, it's mental health. There are lots of mentally ill people. I know people who have mental illnesses, and all of them that I know are nonviolent, and the majority of mentally ill people are nonviolent. But you do have people like this um, who go and shoot at, not only at the child, and they also shot at uh, her parents. Right. And in addition, it's over a basketball, you know? And, and we see another guy in, in another case where he shot uh, some kids who had made a wrong turn and drove up his driveway. Of course, we have Ralph Yarl, who got shot for knocking on a door, you know, without any questions. And he shot him through the glass, uh, sliding glass door. Didn't even, you know, see what was going on, ask questions. Um, I think that one of the things that we do need uh, with these people with mental health issues, and, and of course their charges are pending with, with this assault that Singletary is being uh, investigated for, um, I think one of the issues is we do need red flag laws. There are people out there who commit violent acts and still have access to firearms. And that's the case in North Carolina where this actually occurred. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think an assault should obviously preclude you from having a firearm. But the concern about red flag laws is, as you mentioned, there are tons of people who have mental illnesses who are nonviolent. Right. And I'm concerned that the law would treat all people with mental illness equally and use that as an excuse to take away their Second Absolutely. Amendment right. Yeah, well, we actually agree on that. Um, I think, you know, if we're going to say that the Second Amendment is a constitutional right. You can't take away people's constitutional rights because right. they have a disability. Exactly. You know, so I, I, I agree with that. But if you have committed a violent crime. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, you know, of course, for a long time, there was the boyfriend loophole where, you know, which, again, this would uh, actually qualify where somebody has been accused of a, or convicted of a you know, a, a domestic assault, and they were still able to get weapons, and then a lot of times they would end up killing their girlfriends or their wives. Um, I think that we do need, for people who have been convicted of crimes, and there are lots of states, including North Carolina, that don't have red flag laws because some people in the gun lobby believe that any gun control measure is on a, putting us on a path towards total disarmament, which I think is a disingenuous argument. I mean, I think owning a gun uh, is like, you know, it, it's a privilege in some ways. It's a right well, in others. Well, it certainly others. comes with a responsibility. Absolutely. Um, I mean, everyone who owns a firearm should be taking care to know, understand how to use it, to understand gun safety rules. I mean, I advocate for everybody who buys a firearm to make sure that you're taking training classes. Um, it, but the other thing Should that they we, be required? I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, I'm, I'm um, wondering your no, thoughts on that. Not necessarily, because you know I learned from my parents how to how to handle firearms, and and I went out hunting with my dad when I was a young kid, maybe seven years old, and I understood firearm safety because I learned from him. I did have to take a hunter safety course before I went out on junior hunt day, but the idea that I wouldn't have been able to shoot with my dad in my backyard until I took a class, I, I don't think is quite right. Um, so it's, I mean, there's some nuance to the situation, but the other thing that is crazy about this is the fact that this guy had such a serious charge in terms of the assault on his girlfriend, and he was 
out like roaming free. I mean, I think there needs to be a conversation about how we uh, how we decide which people are let out on bail and which people stay uh, in jail until they go to trial. Because I feel like if you are accused of a serious violent crime like this, it's kind of crazy that he's just going about his day like having but a firearm know, that he can wave around. <laughs> now, now the firearm part we agree on, but I, I, the only thing is that, you know, in the interest of, of civil liberties, a person hasn't been convicted, they've sure. been accused. And I think, you know, if we start saying, hey, you have to stay in jail, but when then you've you been could accused. use that same argument for whether or not you can take away his guns, right? Because yeah, he's sure. only been accused. So it's no, you it's have to find that balance between the civil liberties and not unfairly targeting people who have been falsely accused of a crime, but also making sure that you're protecting public safety. And that's a very fine line to balance. Yeah, I think a temporary temporarily taking away when someone's been accused of a violent crime, temporarily taking away their firearms. Um, because you think, just like if you go to jail, they're going to take away your belt. You think they may do harm. It's a possibility they could do harm to themselves or to other people. I think that that's different than saying you must stay incarcerated. We're going to lock you up, you know, when you haven't been convicted by a jury of your peers. I think that, you know, those are two different things. Mm -hmm. And one is, you know, punitive, and the other is in the interest of, of public safety. And, of course, if somebody has shown themselves to be dangerous and they've gone before a judge and a judge says, we can't even risk having you out on the street, that person should stay incarcerated. But I think that, you know, speaking of going down a path, I think that if we start taking away civil liberties in that way, where it's like, you have to stay locked up, um, it, it could send us on a dangerous path. Yeah, I'd be curious to know what evidence they actually have in this case, because yeah. of course that plays into it as well. Sure. Um, uh, I mean, did the girlfriend come in you know, covered in bruises and or is there video evidence? Because mm -hmm. that, of course, all plays into whether or not someone stays in, in jail pending trial. Um, but I mean, going back to the idea of like what has to be in your mind to do something yeah. like this, it seems like over the past five years, and I'm sure the pandemic and the lockdowns accelerated a lot of this, people are just like revved up. It, it feels like something has changed where people are much quicker to jump to some kind of nuclear option when they're dealing with disagreements or situations where they claim to feel unsafe. And that's something deep in our culture and our society that has to be addressed as well. Yeah, I, I totally can, can see where you're coming from with that. I do think violent crime is not nearly what it was in, in like the late 80s, early 90s. So I wouldn't want to jump to a conclusion that we are somehow more violent than we were then. Well, I just um, mean like but, when you look at, for example, mass shootings, I mean, we've had guns have been an, uh, an intricate part of American society mm -hmm. for the country's entire existence. But it seems like only the past 20 to 30 years that these mass shootings have started to become more common. Right. So there's something psychologically that has changed in our culture to make them more common. And yeah. then on the violent crime issue, um, yes, violent crime is down from the 90s. But over the past three years, particularly when the lockdown started, it has spiked to levels that we haven't seen since that time. And in not particular, quite, quite there. Random, quite there. random violent crime is up, which is, you know, when strangers attack strangers yeah. so, and carjackings are up, which are uh, sure. linked to murders, according to the Brennan Center, which is, a, of course, a public safety think tank. So, 
I mean, there's real, real yeah. cr issues with crime right now. Yeah, no, I, and one of the things we do know, according to the DOJ, when it comes to mass shooting, 77% of mass shooters obtain their firearms legally. But we got to wrap and say we'll be back with more Rising after this. House Republicans have passed a bill banning transgender women and girls from school sports teams, expanding the debate around transgender athletics to a national scale. The bill is titled the Protection of Women and Girls in Sports Act and was sponsored by Representative Greg Subi of Florida. It was passed in a party line 219 to 203 vote. And according to The Hill, it is the first, quote, standalone bill to restrict the rights of transgender people considered in the House. The legislation would amend Title IX to recognize sex as, quote, based solely on a person's reproductive biology and genetics at birth. I think it's probably no surprise, Jason, that I am in huge support of this bill. <laughs> um, I played sports all throughout you know, my young life. I, I played club sports in college, and I actually played on teams that were mixed gender. So when I was at Georgetown, our club field hockey team was allowed to have men on it because it's not a very popular sport for men in the United States. <laughs> and even then, we had rules that you could only have two men on the field at a time as a recognition that there's a basic unfairness because of the mismatch of biological advantages that exist between the sexes. Yeah, so it's interesting that you say that. I mean, I, I was looking at something by a guy named Dr. Eric Villain, and he is someone who advises the NCAA. And he's saying that a lot of these rules are not grounded in science. Now, I'll say this, I'm not, when it comes to transgender young people, I'm much more concerned with other issues than sports. I'm concerned with things like suicide, I'm concerned with bullying. I'm concerned with homelessness. Those are the issues when it comes to transgender people that I'm much more concerned with than whether they play sports. And as a matter of fact, um, transgender people make up about 0.4% of the population. And of that 0.4%, there are estimates that um, about 1.8 of them you know, 1.8 of school children mm -hmm. now identify as trans. I, I don't, I think that's an overestimate. Right. But, but, but let on, me just say, yeah. trans, the trans kids that play sports, that's 12%. Let's just give it, let's call it 1.5%. 12% of that 1.5% are trans athletes. So this is not some big sweeping issue where you're seeing it everywhere. And as a matter of fact, we can take a place like Utah. In the state of Utah, there are four transgender athletes out of 75,000 athletes at the K-12 level. It may not be a big issue, but it's an issue that matters on the individual level. To those girls who are missing out on going to their state championship, okay. who are not able to stand up on the podium because they were beat in the swimming pool by by a man. That matters to them, right? So, and that's an issue of basic unfairness. And the other part of this that I think conservatives actually don't talk about enough is the safety aspect. And I mean that in two, two ways. One, safety on the field. If you're playing a team sport and you're up against someone who has this massive biological advantage of strength and speed, it is far more likely for a woman to get hurt in that situation. I've seen it firsthand on the field hockey field. These guys are running through women like it's nobody's business because 
the level of, of, of athleticism is just so different. And then there's the issue in the locker rooms because you have women on track teams in the Northeast who are talking about how they're in the locker room with someone who is having an erection while they're changing. And the school tells them, actually, you're the problem and you need to pick a different locker room if you have a problem with it because this person says that they're a woman. I'm not okay with that. Yeah, well, we're talking about girls, not, not women for the most part. We're talking about girls and boys, not women and men. But I'll say this. Um, so there are a couple of things. Number one, going back to that, that doctor, Eric Villain, he talks about people talking about a, a biological advantage. And that depends on the sport. So for example, you know, men are generally and boys are generally taller. So that you might have an advantage in swimming. Of course, we had Leah Thomas, she's 6'5", she's got a 6'5 wingspan. She's gonna have a little bit of advantage even though she lost a lot of those races. She won a couple of them, but she lost uh, many of them as well. Um, but in a sport like gymnastics, it actually doesn't benefit you to be a man. So a lot of this depends upon the sport. The other thing that I'll say is a lot of people, you know, this has gone both ways because there was a, a trans male athlete, born female. Mm -hmm. um, her name was Mac Begg, or his name, excuse me, it was Mac Begg, and he was forced, he? Yes, he was forced <laughs> uh, Don't to Don't switch yourself up there, I know it's confusing. Yeah, no, it is, it is. I mean, we're, we're lear we learn language a particular way, we learn our pronouns a particular way, but I'm not gonna disrespect Mac. And uh, Mac was forced to compete against the girls. Mac wanted to compete against boys. In, in wrestling and ended up winning a state championship uh, against girls because they wouldn't let him compete against boys. And people were upset either way. It was, there was somebody who was upset that this person was able to compete against girls. So it's really, a lot of it sometimes comes down to winning. And when the AP reached out to state leaders in a lot of these places that have banned transgender athletes, they asked them, do you have any examples of any trans athletes in your state? So states like Tennessee, they asked Jim Justice in uh, West Virginia. I interviewed Governor Kristi Noem uh, in South Dakota. And what you found was none of them could cite any examples of trans athletes. They are just like talking about, well, it could happen one day. I mean, I suppose you could buy snow plows for Phoenix because it could snow one day, but this is not really an issue. It hasn't been an issue. And even in the states where they do have trans athletes, they're so rare. A lot of young trans people would rather, you know, do makeup tutorials, you know, than, you know, than actually play a sport. Um, again, Louisiana banned trans athletes. There are no known trans athletes in the state. So I think this is, when we're talking about trans issues on the, on the left and the right, we should be concerned on the ones that are actually causing people harm, causing people to die. A lot of that comes down to, like I said, suicide. Um, a lot of it comes down to homelessness. A lot of it comes down to bullying. Those are the issues that I'm most concerned with. But when we're talking about these sports issues, it's, it's a very effective thing, as we, you and I discussed. It's very effective because it takes away this kind of feminist argument from the left and kind of puts it on the right where they're saying they're protecting women and girls and the left hasn't really come up with a response for it. But I kind of err on the side of, you know, kind of 
I guess the libertarian or classical liberal kind of response where it's kind of like, all right, like, you know, I'm not really offended by trans athletes playing sports. I think to there me, are much as a woman issues. and as a former female athlete and as a young girl who was in those locker rooms, I just find it to be so obvious that on the issues of fairness and safety and respect for women's mm -hmm. spaces, biological men shouldn't be in there. It's inappropriate. And this issue goes beyond sports, too. It's a question of, should biological men be housed in women's prisons? There have been yeah, cases that's, where that's women— that's a real issue. I it, think that— Yeah, and, and that's the same idea of having that ability to have privacy from members of the opposite sex. There's been cases where biological men have gone into saunas or gyms and been in the women's locker room, and consistently women are told that our instinct to feel unsafe in that situation is wrong. And there's a wonderful book called the gift of fear. And it talks about how we have these gut instincts and this ability to protect ourselves from potentially unsafe situations. Mm -hmm. And we are teaching young girls right now to ignore that gut instinct when a biological man comes into their private space. And that could have really dangerous effects for them later in life when they are, are well, refusing to listen to that thing in their head that's innate mm -hmm. that says this is not right. Yeah, I think, um, you know, early in my teaching career, uh, I used to talk to some of the football players, and they would be afraid of a gay athlete in their locker room. Now it's not even an issue. They don't even think about, you know, that the fact that someone could be gay or someone could be sexually attracted to them. Now it's not an issue. And when we talk about people uh, being afraid, when it comes to sexual assault, women get sexually assaulted by straight men in most cases. And girls get sexually assaulted by straight men in most cases. It's not trans people when it doesn't bear well, but out. But a trans person could but, be straight. But let's actually move on. This is a really good conversation and it's one that we're not gonna resolve today. But you know, um, we have to actually talk about what's going on next week on Rising. Robbie and Bree will be back with you to break down all of the Twitter drama that went down today. This was fun, Amber. I love these conversations. We're definitely gonna have to do this together again very soon. Thank you so much. Absolutely, I really enjoyed it. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much for tuning in to The Hills Rising, and we'll see you next time.